Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio, a podcast for public health professionals looking to expand their network, be inspired, and discover resources and tools that help improve the experience of public health professionals and patients in their communities. I'm your host, Fran. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Reach Radio. I'm so excited to be able to introduce you to Heidi Altman, who is an applied and linguistic anthropologist and associate professor at Georgia Southern University. She is leading the Georgia Moms Project, an initiative that is focused on better understanding the maternal care journey for women throughout the state of Georgia. The work that she's doing, while it's focused on the state of Georgia, has implications that are much farther reaching. The work that she's doing very much helps us to gain insight to why the maternal mortality rates are so high here in the United States and throughout such regions of the country as the Southeastern U.S. Heidi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We're excited to have you with us today. Why don't we jump in and get started? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. Okay. So I'm a professor of anthropology at Georgia Southern University. And the project that I'm here to talk about today is the Georgia Moms Project, which is a research project that I started with a friend and colleague of mine who's an OBGYN in Savannah. And her name's Nkinga Jackson, but she's an OBGYN over there. And she works for the Curtis V. Cooper clinics, which are sort of a safety net clinic for the Savannah area. And we were talking about the sort of really appalling statistics about maternal mortality and morbidity here in Georgia, worst in the nation, just about, and especially three to five times higher rates of morbidity and mortality for African-American women and women of color. And so we were trying to figure out things that are being done here in terms of clinical interventions. So there are really good programs trying to make sure all the hospitals are up to speed and the doctors have the things they need. But no one had really talked to moms about their experience in the maternity care journey. And so I started, you know, started thinking about, because I'm an anthropologist, I'm all about the qualitative data, all about talking to people and finding out what their story is. And so that's, we've been doing for about a year and a half now. So. Wow. I absolutely love that. This is really exciting. And you're exactly right. I mean, we spent a lot of time emphasizing, you know, the morbidity and mortality rates, but actually referring to like what's going on from the perspective of the mother, as opposed to just the perspective of the care coordination team. And I would imagine that you've kind of discovered some pretty eye-opening things. I'm going to say it that way. (laughs) My eyes are now open. For sure. I mean, we've had a policy of just sort of broadcasting the availability of interviews. And so I've had, and so we also did some intercept interviews in the clinics with people who wanted to be interviewed who were there as patients. But so we've had a wide variety of people participate, everyone from lawyers and doctors to people who are, you know, underemployed or unemployed or living, you know, with family or whatever. So we've had a whole lot of different moms from different socioeconomic classes different backgrounds, all kinds of different things participate. And, you know, it's surprising how much they have in common sometimes, but also how much, you know, the the things that are starting to emerge really are that, you know, especially if women are on Medicaid in Georgia, the cutoff was six weeks postpartum. And so we know from the statistics about all of this, that women are likely to encounter trouble, like one third of them approximately in the pregnancy period, approximately one third of them in the labor and delivery period. 
and then another whole third of them in that postpartum year. And so if they're only getting coverage for six weeks, that's a whole lot of time that they're not covered. And Georgia recently expanded that, I think, to six months, but it's still not the whole year. And so part of it is the coverage in that postpartum year, but also part of it is just women here are very isolated. This is a very rural area. And so if you have a baby, even if you have a great partner who's trying to you know, be as helpful and supportive as possible, it's different than having other women who have been through this before to talk to, or having, you know, some of the women I talked to, this was really their first time of talking about their labor and delivery and postpartum experience. So, and that was also eye-opening to me, but anyway. Well, I can only imagine that it would be. Who are some of the stakeholders that your team has been working with to go about the process of collecting all of this data and doing the, conducting these interviews? That's a lot of time goes into doing yeah. that, right? Yes. And up to this point, it's just, it's been me <laughs> doing the interviews and also, but working with the Curtis V. Cooper clinics, as I mentioned there, they have three different clinics and we've been, you know, this was all before COVID too, when I could go sit in the clinics and try to, you know, catch moms as they were coming out. So we had a number of interviews done that way and they've been wonderful partners. They have been very supportive of the project because they're, you know, I think doctors are also, I think when those initial reports started coming out, I think doctors were surprised at the maternal mortality rates because I think when you're in your own practice or your own clinic, you don't necessarily see the bigger patterns that are happening. And so it's been, I think, eye-opening for them too. So they've been a great partner. And then also through that partnership. And so the women's clinic for Curtis V. Cooper is at St. Joseph's Candler in Savannah. And through that connection, which is where my friend and partner, Dr. Jackson is, we've also recently become, and we're in the process of working all the details to become connected up to the Medical College of Georgia. So I'll be working with medical students who will be also doing some interviews. So that will give them ethnographic interviewing experience, which will be useful for their own patient care experience. They don't oftentimes get a lot of that listening experience maybe as, you know, young doctors. So, and I have a great set of students there who are really excited to participate and really, you know, excited to get things going. So we're working on getting that straightened out and going right now. And then other than that, I have colleagues who are in my own department. I have another applied anthropologist in my department. And then I have colleagues in our College of Public Health at Georgia Southern who are also interested in working with me on the data once it's all been collected. So we've got about 40 interviews done so far and the process of being analyzed analyzed. So they've been transcribed, which is a whole thing. The transcripts have been cleaned. We're in the process of getting them coded and analyzed so we can start putting this data out there. And then the public health people have a little bit different questions than the anthropology people have, which is a great partnership for us to be working through. So this is really exciting. What incredible work that your team is doing and the fact that it's growing. But I would imagine with that, there must be some challenges as well, right? Along the way. Talk to us a little bit about some of those and how you're overcoming them. I think the biggest challenge really is, like I say, up to this point, it's mostly just been me doing the interviews, which has been difficult, especially with COVID. I mean, thankfully, because of COVID, oddly, we have now Zoom more commonly and we have these kind of teleconferencing capabilities better worked out than we did in the beginning. But that's been a challenge. And that's one reason taking on these additional medical students has been really a boon, you know, big help for that. Some of the other things, you know, I've been trying to find, I keep trying to locate the best ways to move forward with this. So so one of the things that I'm trying to do is propose interventions based on women's experiences 
cases. So rather than the clinical interventions that have been put forward, I have in mind some things that would be helpful for women. So we're trying to search for funding venues and things like that, that would help us put together a program for women to support them through pregnancy, labor, delivery, and the postpartum year, even if it's some kind of virtual connection or something. But I think, I think a lot of that, a lot of the difficulties that women are feeling is that feeling of isolation I mentioned earlier. So trying to, and then also this area is very large and rural and, you know, it's kind of hard to connect with people sometimes. So that's been the thing. That makes total sense. It really does. If you were to sort of advise others who are wanting to get started with doing similar kinds of research initiatives in their own states, what are some of the things that you would advise them of? I mean, I think it's really important for, I think the kind of synergy that comes between social science researchers and people in medical professions is really important. And I wouldn't be able to do any of this without those connections. So it's one thing, I mean, I consider as an anthropologist and think about, oh, these are the things that I would love to know about people, you know, but I can't get to those people unless I also have, you know, some of the medical establishment, you know, connected. So that's one thing is definitely look for those kind of partnerships and connections that you can make. Another thing is to really work through the kinds of information that you're interested in collecting. So part of the basis for the interview schedule that we have is the CDC's five areas of concern, which have to do with the individual and for maternal mortality, you know, had individual institutions, community, family, and there's and I think access, you know, is one of them. So the questions that are in the interview schedule are sort of shaped around those. So if you can find some kind of a structure to hang your hat on, it also helps because it keeps your interviews more regular and it, it helps you sort of focus in on the kind of problems that are being addressed. So if you look preliminarily at the data, would you say that there's opportunity at the political level as well, like legislatively to make some changes based on what you're hearing? I certainly hope so. I mean, I was very thankful to see now Georgia had its own maternal mortality commission, you know, when this initially came out and they did put forth, I think the big change that they put forth was to extend the postpartum year, you know, into the middle of the postpartum year for Medicaid. But I think there are certainly many other issues in Georgia that have policy implications or have policy solutions, right? So that could be, we have a dire provider shortage in Georgia. I mean, Seriously, there are areas of Georgia where there's like one or two OBGYNs for 2,700 square miles, right? We have also a shortage of hospitals. Many of our rural hospitals have closed. And so if you're, you know, if you're pregnant or having even the postpartum year having issues, it's hard to get to care. Another issue I think that's, that could be addressed through policy is that there are not enough high-risk pregnancy centers either. So in addition to not having enough hospitals, if women are deemed high risk, which a lot of them are because it's a rural area and the, you know, small town doctors don't necessarily feel like they can handle some of the issues that are potential. Women have to go quite a distance and with great, you know, sometimes at their own peril to get to care. So these are things I think that could be addressed through policy, certainly. It's really amazing. In terms of some of the work that your department is focused on, is it is this just a special area of emphasis that you're diving into or have you or you anticipate doing more across other areas of, you know, disparity in healthcare? Okay, so I'm part of an anthropology program that is part of a socianth department. And in our department, the sociologists are always focused on social issues, disparities, and things like that. And there are a variety of different projects that are happening in our department, especially with, I mean, all kinds of different 
issues. Everybody, I mean, there's several projects going on. For us in anthropology, we're about half archaeologists. So they're doing totally different stuff. And then my colleague, Jennifer Sweeney Tooks, who is an applied anthropologist also, she's working on more like food nutritional issues and you know, specifically working with fishing communities and things like that. So we do have a, I mean, applied anthropology has a wide net, so to speak. There are a lot of different things that we are interested in looking at. And so this particular project right now is the main one that we have that's health related or health disparity related. Although I've worked in other communities in the past with similar issues. So I love that. I really like it a lot. Do you see yourself continue to like like, do you have a vision of seeing yourself out there continue to do further work and exploration within maternal health specifically, or branching potentially in another domain, subdomain of healthcare? I would love to continue on the sort of, we call it medical anthropology, right? Medical anthropology track. And that's one reason why I'm so happy to have the partnerships I have with my colleagues in public health. I mean, it's sort of a natural fit between us. And they have, I have a colleague who has a great breastfeeding project going on right now. I have a colleague over there who specializes in sexual health and especially among men and men with HIV. I have another colleague over there who specializes in or another colleague who's a public health person who specializes in children's issues and children with special needs. So I think there's a, a lot of potential for us. This is why I'm trying to pull all of us together around this right now so that we have the potential to go off and collaborate on other projects as well. Oh, that's fantastic. How do you go about the prioritization? Like, how do you choose where to go next? That is a good question. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> interestingly, I mean, I think one thing about this project is that it just keeps getting bigger, you know. Originally, I was just having this conversation with my friend and then it kind of became bigger and bigger and bigger and it's getting bigger. So at this moment, I mean, I think we'll probably stick with this and see there's the potential to work with the medical school every year for the next however long we want to, you know, so that's a great opportunity. I think that the next priority is probably wherever we find the greatest need next. So this was heavy on my heart as far as women dying in childbirth. I mean, childbirth is something, I mean, I, I'm from the South, but I had my son in California, which has a whole different climate around childbirth, you know, a whole different set of priorities, a whole different, you know, and to see here how much, I mean, friends of mine who've had babies here or whatever, how different that is, was really eye-opening to me, but also, you know, I mean, it just seemed like an urgent need to see what women were experiencing and how their stories could try to help shape some change for future moms. So, and I would anticipate that funding makes the difference too. Have you sought after, or are you considering the pursuit of grants? Yes, we're considering that. And we have some lined up that we're going to apply for later this year. You know, the pandemic kind of disrupted a lot of the Mm -hmm. um, momentum that we had going initially. So we're getting back on track with that. We're going to be applying for some grants to, like I said, try to develop interventions based on women's experience for you know, other women going through the childbirth experience. So it's trying to use those women's lived experience for these interventions rather than just the clinical numbers and things like that. Heidi, this is really fascinating, especially as you begin to describe sort of the ethnography work itself, right? And there are kind of different forms of or types in which this presents. And I understood from what you were sharing that most of it has been through interviews. Mm -hmm. Are you also doing some video ethnography work or have you considered doing that as well? 
Well, so, okay, so we haven't done video ethnography because we want to be able to assure anonymity. So at this point, the anonymity issue has overtaken everything else because women, like I mentioned earlier, for some of them, this is the first time they've talked about their experience. And for some of them, it was traumatic, you know, and so it's sort of a, it's a privacy issue. I would love to do, and I've had people who have been interviewed who also offered to do like a photo voice project or something like that, where we have, you know, women who are interested in not in the anonymity part, but in sharing their stories and sharing their photos or other images and things like that. I would love to do that. We haven't been able to do that yet. I also have a colleague. Here's another kind of interesting connection and I don't know, potential, but I have a colleague who is an art professor and she's an amazing portraitist. I mean, she, she does professional portraits. And so one of the things that she had offered to do, this was also pre-pandemic before everything went crazy, but was to ask moms if, you know, some of the moms that we work with don't have even photographs with their families, you know, necessarily, but to do a nice portrait of the family or a nice portrait of the mom and the children, which would be a really cool opportunity for them also. And yet again, so this is something that we still have to work out in terms of the privacy issue. So there would have to be a, probably a special separate set of, you know, consents and things like that, that would go along with that. As we are going through now adding the medical students, we have to add different consents for that because they're going to have different access to the patients that they're seeing than I would certainly have or have had in the past. So it just gets more complicated, (laughs) but I would love to be able to do certainly like a photo voice or, or video ethnography with this, but it hasn't presented the opportunity yet. So. Still very fascinating. And and the notion of the ways in which, right, you have the opportunity to even make it more sort of personalized by bringing forth, in addition to those voices, the faces of these women as well is incredible. So we're kind of getting through the pandemic. We're working our way out of it. Yep. Do you anticipate that the work with the students, is that going to start you anticipating the fall that picking up I mean, I've already done one orientation with them. Right now we're in the process of negotiating the relationship, which is something that I was, I thought was because we're all in the same system. (laughs) This is a university thing, you know, whatever. But I thought because we're all in the same system, it would be easier, but it's turned out to be more complicated than I had initially anticipated. But at the same time, it's good. It's, I mean, good progress has been made. I thought we would have the students being trained on the methods by now. And the one thing that's kind of interesting is that these medical students get trained on all kinds of other stuff, but they don't really get trained on interviewing. And I think that's something that will help them. So they're going to be interviewing people. They're also going to be cleaning transcripts so that they read transcripts of interviews that they don't conduct. So they get more exposure. And then they'll also be coding data with us, you know, looking at, so some of it's open-ended coding and some of it's coding according to the interview schedule and stuff like that. But that gives them also qualitative research and data processing experience that they wouldn't have otherwise. And that may also be helpful in their practice, you know, so, but hopefully we'll be working with them before the end of the summer. That's my goal. I think that's so amazing that you're pulling this together. And as you were describing it, so much came through my mind for, you know, I think about clinical empathy, right? And the research that REACH has done on clinical empathy and an element of that just, you know, not even taking, recognizing the seriousness of what it means to the individual, how personally serious a circumstance or situation may be. And I'm just, I'm sort of wondering might there be opportunity for this to be, you know, a course that's incorporated either into, you know, pre-qualifications for med school or, you know, some part of the med school curriculum itself? I mean, this is... I would certainly think it would be beneficial to the students and the patients. I mean, one reason, I mean, this is also me taking on additional students in one, in some ways, right? So on the one hand, 
that's a lot more work, but it's also a lot more opportunity. But on the other hand, I felt like all of that was balanced out by the fact that these new doctors are going to have so much deeper insight and so much deeper empathy for the people that they're encountering because they will have heard all of these interviews or they will have, you know, read them or worked on them or whatever to see what women's experiences are. I mean, I think it, I mean, even in the orientation that we had initially, I shared two transcripts with them just so that, you know, or two portions of transcripts with them from prior interviews so that they could see you know, what we're talking about. And one of the people that was interviewed was actually someone that worked in a hospital and had, you know, all the things at her disposal. And she had a really hard experience. And another one was someone who, you know, had very few resources and also had a very hard experience. So, I mean, it's like, I think it was sort of a leveling for them to see, wow. And they had no idea, even just the things that are potential problems, you know? I mean, I think coming from that side, you're all, you're concerned about checking the box on diagnosis and treatment and all these things. And they have no idea what people are bringing with them into that situation. That is absolutely so true. And our data shows that as well, right? Both on that end, as well as some of the quantitative data that's being collected as well. When can we look forward to the research being published? What's your date? We're, when are we- yeah, we're working this summer to try to get articles out. We're trying to get the articles out. We're going to try to get at least two or three out or in process by the end of the summer. Personally, as an anthropologist, so we're trying to do a couple of things. One is that we're trying to get things in public health journals and things so that we can better qualify for grants that connect to that kind of stuff. But as an anthropologist and as a qualitative person, my impulse is to do a book, right? I want to do a book with all of the interviews and I want to do a book with all of the connections between interviews and pull all that stuff together. So that's my ultimate end game, you know, but in the beginning or at this point, we've got to be looking at trying to get some journal articles out about specific methodological things or specific demographic things or whatever we need to do. So the team is working on that this summer. So we're trying to get that together. But I think certainly for me personally, I want to try to get a book pulled together out of, out of the, we right now just have pilot interviews really. And then there's going to be, there's the potential for there to be at least, you know, a couple hundred more every year, which is going to be, you know, volumes and volumes of books for, you know, potential. But I would love to get the pilot interviews pulled together into one book by the end of the year or later, you know, maybe the beginning of next year, but it's, uh, it's a lot to do with trying to get grants also and other stuff. But well, Heidi, this has been amazing. And I just applaud you for the work that you're doing. We're going to be looking for those articles. That's for sure. Really looking forward to being able to read some of the insights that you've been able to gather. Just tremendous. I can't believe we're out of time. I know it goes by so quickly, but I would love to ask you to share with us a resource or a tool that perhaps you personally or your team has found invaluable either in the work that you're doing or in a personal level. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's so many things like just methodological things. There's so many, you know, I mean, it's hard to say. Well, um, let's talk about that methodologically. What are some resources? Because there are lots of folks out there who want to do research. They get stumped. They don't know the correct approach to take. They attempt to reinvent the wheel when right, they perhaps right. they should be leveraging what's existing. Right. right. And I think, so there, there are several good qualitative research handbooks, right, that are out there. And the ones that we use are primarily for the anthropological arena. Let me see if I can find one thing here. I'm trying to remember. But I think, you know, methodologically looking at qualitative data and qualitative research, you know, as a 
thing. A lot of people don't, I mean, I think that's one thing that is a great resource in general is qualitative research. And I think people in general always want to go for the numbers or always want to go for the things that can be counted or statistically analyzed. But I think that knowing the value of the context for all of that, so that's part of what qualitative research is about, really is establishing and completely fleshing out the context of everything that's possible. That's something that's been very, I think, important for this project and a lot of other projects. I mean, one of the things that we use in teaching this, there's a SAGE handbook on qualitative research, which is a great basic resource on this. I mean, there there are several, there's also, also one that's an Oxford handbook, but those are things that I think anybody who wants to do this kind of research, you should at least familiarize yourself with the methods, right? I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge difference than just, you know, we also collect a survey at the beginning. So when people sign up, they get a survey that they take that's a demographic survey, and then that assigns them a random number. And then that's how we keep track of their interview. But the interview and the basis for the interview, all that is the qualitative research. Very nice. Very in nice. vivo. <laughs> yes, in that's right. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Heidi, thank you so much. And if our listeners would like to learn more about the work that you're doing or about the university, what's the best way for them to contact you? They can email me. My email address is hAltman at georgiasouthern.edu, or they can look at the Georgia Moms Project webpage, which is just gamomsproject.com. And there's email on there also that they can contact me. And if there's someone in Georgia who's had a baby in the last 10 years and they're one year postpartum, they can also sign up for an interview. So come that on is in. wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio. This program is made possible by listeners like you. To learn more about Reach and to support this program, visit www.reachtl.org.